In our study through the book of Acts, we came to that challenging portion at the end of chapter 4, which records the generous, spontaneous giving of those early believers filled with the Spirit of God. And it seemed to lead us into a study of biblical principles regarding finances. So many are struggling with matters uh, of finance that there is not the kind of freedom there ought to be, in many lives at least, to respond to the Holy Spirit when he leads one to give generously to a cause. Today we're going to finish the message on God's principles of family finance. You will recall that there's a great deal in the Bible about this subject of money. It is said that two-thirds of the marital and family problems are related to it. And so since the Word of God has so much to say about a problem that is so common, it is good for us to at least take a couple of weeks to see what God says regarding finances. With apologies to Bill Bright, who made this statement, or one like it, popular, uh, we begin by saying this, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your finances. God's plan for your finances can be summarized in certain principles that we have looked at together. We have seen four of them. The first one is that all of us possess wealth and that God gives it to us. We have defined wealth as whatever God entrusts to us. It does not refer just to those who are rich as we count riches, but all of us have some wealth. It may be tangible or it could be intangible, but anything that has measurable value can be called wealth. God gives wealth to us. All of us possess it. God doesn't condemn wealth. In fact, he gives us, in fact, he gives us the ability to gain it through work, through investment, and through inheritance. The second principle that we've already studied is that God uses our wealth for several purposes in our lives. God uses our wealth to bless us. God is not stingy. God does not delight to watch us be miserable. Rather, God wants our best, and he delights to bless us, and he does by increasing our wealth. Secondly, God purposes through our wealth to test us on occasion. For we are stewards, we are stewards of what belongs to him. So he uses our wealth, or sometimes he withholds our wealth to reveal our maturity, our trustworthiness, our wisdom. Thirdly, God uses wealth for the purpose of teaching us, teaching us of his faithfulness, teaching us of his trustworthiness, to teach us about patience on our part. Certainly it is through the giving or the withholding of money that God can get our attention real quick and so God uses our wealth for that purpose, to teach us lessons. And finally, God uses wealth in our lives to make us channels to meet other people's needs. He purposes to use us so that we can help those who have needs in their lives. We then become channels of his resources 
to his people. The third statement or principle that we studied regarding finance, and this is where we stopped the last time, is that we must beware of the dangers of wealth. For there are dangers. There are three of them that we have counted together. First, gaining it can become the focus of our lives. That is a danger. It can become the controlling, dominating force in our lives, thus subverting our morality, causing us to use and manipulate people, to be tempted to destroy anyone or anything in our way, and above all, causing us to forget God. Gaining it can become the focus of our lives. That is a danger that we must beware of. A second danger that we've studied is that possessing it can create anxiety, or the old word that we're used to, worry. Possessing it can cause us to worry. The rich man worries that he will lose what he has, and the poor man worries that he won't have enough. We must beware of anxiety. Worry about money can destroy our minds, our bodies, our souls. It can also create tremendous family problems due to stress because of the lack of money or to overwork because of trying to get enough of it. So possessing it can, if we allow it to, create anxiety in our lives. Beware. Then a third danger of wealth is that failure to manage it can bring one into bondage, that is, to debt. Now, we define debt as the inability to repay what has been borrowed. If one is meeting his obligations on a loan arrangement, that is not debt in the biblical sense. It is an obligation that one has. But debt occurs when one has overextended himself. That is financial bondage, when the liabilities that one has exceed the assets that one possesses. Debt results in frustration, unfulfilled needs, and once again, worry. The question I want to ask as we get started this morning after that quick review is how can one escape these dangers that we've talked about? How can one escape them? Let's talk first about the love of money or what the Bible calls covetousness. How can one escape loving money? The answer to that is by learning to be content. Turn once again, as we did last time, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We have here in the final chapter of this first epistle to Timothy some excellent words regarding the love of money and how to overcome that. Paul is speaking about some of the false teachers of that day who were after money. And he says in verse 6, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Godliness is its own reward. And he says it is a great gain when it is accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, 1 Timothy 6, 7, we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. 
And if we have food and covering, that is clothing, with these we shall be content. Content. How many people do you know who are truly content? What does it mean to be content? I think the basic institute on youth conflicts has a fine working definition of contentment. They say, realizing that God has given me everything I need for my present happiness is contentment. Realizing that God has given me everything I need for my present happiness, that's contentment. Contentment is a sort of self-sufficiency, not centered upon oneself, but it is sufficiency within oneself apart from exterior circumstances of life. That is contentment. The apostle goes on here in the word to warn us that those who want to get rich, that is those who are not content with what God has provided, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Think of how many evils in the world are the product of the love of money. Right now our government is deeply concerned about what can be done done with the horrendous drug problem in our society. One of the reports I saw in that this last week said that a problem they face presently is that whenever they arrest the leaders of a group, that there are immediately people standing in the shadows who step forward to fill their places. Now why is that? Because of the lucrative results that come from preying upon the weaknesses and the miseries of sad and tragic people. But the love of money causes people to desire to be involved in that sort of thing. It is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. They can't blame anybody but themselves, says the Bible, for the kind of pain that they endure. They have pierced themselves because of the love of money. How can one escape this? Let me give you four suggestions. One can escape from covetousness, first of all, by identifying his real needs versus his wants. That's a struggle for all of us, isn't it? Because it's so easy for us to put our wants into the category of what we need. But if we're going to escape covetousness, we have to be rather ruthless about this thing as we judge it in our lives and decide what it is that we really need and what things are there that we would like to have. The must-haves versus the would-likes. I think the way to determine one's needs is the answering of this question. What must I have to live 
and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the place where he has called me? The answer to that will vary with the individual. I cannot judge the needs of anyone else in the congregation. The answer to the question is personal. It is customized. What must I have to live and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the place where he has called me? As I evaluate the response to that question, I come close to finding out what my needs are. And once you know your needs, let your needs determine your basic standard of living. Don't allow your standard of living to fluctuate with your income as it increases. But be harsh and disciplined with yourself and determine that you will establish your standard of living based upon your needs, not the income that you have. Second, discipline yourself to live on what you have. If you want to escape the love of money, discipline yourself to live on what you have. To do that, you have to have a budget. And you have to develop what is called sales resistance. Sales resistance. It is a good thing I am married because I have a difficult time resisting a salesman. I know the statements, I know the tricks to close the sale, and I fall as a sucker for it every time. And I tend to be an impulse buyer. At least I used to be, worse than I am now. An impulse buyer, you have to be aware of that kind of purchasing. One has to deny self-indulgence and extravagance. Discipline yourself to live in what you have. Third, If you want to escape covetousness, learn to give money away. That's the real test. You'll find out real quickly how much the love of money has a hold of you when it comes to the point of giving it away. Now I want to go on to say learning to give it away wisely, not foolishly. Don't be a sucker for everything that comes along asking for your money. Be wise about how and where and to whom you give your money. And fourth, pray about your desires. Let God fulfill them if and as he sees best. You've already discovered, hopefully, your wants, or rather, excuse me, your needs. Now your wants, let God determine how to fulfill those. Remember that contentment is not found in the possession of things, but in resting In the providence of God, knowing that he will bring to me what he sees I need and what he sees is best. I have some good friends who live in California and they've been desiring for, oh, I suppose uh, two or three years to come out to Minnesota to visit us. I called them a couple of weeks ago and I said, hey, when are you making that trip to Minnesota? And uh, they confessed that they had just paid off their vacation from last summer and had learned a lesson from that, not to borrow money to go on vacation. And so they said, we're praying about it. And they said, why don't you pray with us? Because there's a radio station there having a contest. And uh, the third prize are two round-trip tickets on Western Airlines wherever they fly. So you pray with us that if God wants us to come to Minnesota, we'll win the third prize. (laughs) Well, that's what you call praying about your wants. I got a call this week. They won the third prize. (laughs) 
One out of 30,000. <laughs> so they'll be here in June. I'll be glad to introduce them to you. <laughs> That's how we escape covetousness, for suggestions at least. Let's talk about the second danger, worry. How does one escape from worry? Now, of course, that's something most of us don't experience, right? So we need to learn this for other people. But let's learn it so we can pass it along. What's the answer to worry? Very simple. Learn to trust God. That's too simple, isn't it? We think. But it boils down to that very simple statement. I can overcome worry in my life, whether it be about money or anything else, by learning to trust God. Turn to Luke chapter 12. The Lord Jesus says in verse 22, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious, do not worry for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. He says, don't worry about your basic needs. For the life is more than food, and the body than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. And they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. Does God miraculously provide for the birds? No, not really. Through the cycle of nature... And through what he has built into them, their needs are provided for. So Jesus is not necessarily saying here that God is going to miraculously, supernaturally drop out of heaven what you need for your, your life. But he's saying that God has given us abilities. God has given us industry and in our character so that we can go out and work. And normally it is through that means that God will provide for our needs. He goes on to say in verse 29, Do not seek what you shall eat, what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. So Jesus is simply saying here that if you and I will make the Lord and His work in the world and in our lives are number one priority. God will see to it our needs are met. We can learn to trust Him. Our Father knows our needs. He has committed Himself to provide for them. We should not deny Him the opportunity to prove Himself or to direct us by providing or withholding. Worry doesn't do any good anyway, does it? And in fact, worry destroys our testimony because what it says is that our Father either doesn't know or He doesn't care or He can't meet our needs. That's what worry testifies. Someone has said worry is interest paid on trouble before it is due. Don't worry. Leave your needs with God. Trust in Him. Worry is like a rocking chair. 
It'll give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. I guess all of us have heard the poem, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. If you and I really want to get the victory over worry, then it comes by learning to trust our Father. Then the third danger that comes with wealth is that of bondage or debt. What is the answer to debt? Learning to live within God's provision. The reason that we get into debt is that we are not content to live within what God provides for us. And so we go out and we borrow in order to get. You say, the real problem I have is not knowing that. I think I've learned that. My problem is, how do I get out of debt? And I suppose there are many of us today who are facing that. How can one escape financial bondage? Where we've gotten in over our heads is the real point. And we're not able to keep now the obligations that we have made. How can we regain the peace and the freedom, the release that we once knew before we got into this kind of bondage? I want to suggest six things very, very quickly. Number one, you can begin by transferring the ownership of all you have to God. Now that is a mental and spiritual maneuver that is significant. It takes time and work to do that. But you must begin by transferring the ownership of all you have to God. Recognize that it is His. All you have is His, not just the 10% that we sometimes hear about. By the way, if you have never heard or read the pineapple story, you need to get a hold of that book from somebody who has it or from the Basic Institute on Youth Conflicts and read it. The pineapple story is a fantastic story of a missionary who learned what it means to give ownership to God of all that he had. Number two, give something to God as a token of your sincerity. In other words, begin immediately to give to his work. Evidence his preeminence in your life as a step of faith and obedience. You say, yes, but my debts. Listen, your first debt is to God. Your first obligation is to him. So evidence in some tangible way his priority in your life. That's step number two. Number three, begin buying on a cash only basis. Destroy your credit cards. What someone has called those plastic gods that we carry around with us who meet our needs. Destroy them. You know, buying on credit can become habitual and addictive as much as drugs. So my counsel to you, if you are in financial bondage, is just to quit cold turkey. Take a pair of scissors and cut those cards up. Now our society is based upon credit. Far, far too much for its own health. Perhaps you, like me, have received letters in the mail. You have already been approved for $3,000 or $5,000 or $500 credit 
All you have to do is return this form to us and we'll immediately send you our card. And you can go out and buy whatever you need. How tantalizing that is. How alluring and deceptive. For one almost begins to think that that's free money, but it's not. It's not. Begin buying on a cash-only basis if you really want to get out of debt. If you are in debt now, you're in financial bondage at this point, you will never get out as long as you use a credit card. You're in debt because of credit. Now, there may be a time in the future when you will be able to use a credit card and make it your tool instead of it dominating you. But for right now, you must get rid of those cards. Number four, attempt to arrange for possible payments with your creditors. And we're talking about someone who's weighing over his head, who can't keep his obligations, who's getting letters and phone calls saying, when are you going to pay? Number four, then, attempt to arrange for possible payments with your creditors. Most creditors, if they sense you are sincere about it, will work with you and will help you to get out of debt. There are what I think some unscrupulous people around who encourage even further debt. We had one man in our church who was in over his head. And he got a letter from his finance company that said, we know that you're having trouble meeting our payments. Let us loan you some more money so you won't have so much, many problems. You say, well, what about bankruptcy? Is that a possibility? This is my opinion, and I'm sure that there are some who might disagree with me on this, but I believe that bankruptcy can be used, but only if absolutely necessary, and then not to escape responsibility for what is owed, but only to protect one's assets so that he can pay back what is owed in full, ultimately. We had a man in the church uh, that I pastored who was in partnership with some unsaved men. And they got themselves into real financial bondage and the other two skipped town, leaving him with the shambles of the business and this humongous debt. He had no choice but to file for bankruptcy. He learned a lesson, number one, that you don't go into business with unconverted people. And he has remembered that now over these, I suppose, some perhaps 20 years since that occurred. He declared bankruptcy, but his purpose was not to be relieved of his obligations, but only protect what he had. And he went back over a period of time and paid back in full every creditor of their business. And God has honored him because of that. His business has flourished. And uh, indeed today he's uh, even on the, the board of a bank in that city. Now, when you declare bankruptcy, if you feel that's a tool you must use or something you need to realize, there are certain consequences that can occur to your credit future. Attempt to do everything you can to bring your payments down so that you can pay all of your creditors off given time. Number five, write out a budget and learn to stick with it. That's not going to happen accidentally. It's going to require discipline on your part. But do it anyway. Write down a budget. What your income is on one side of the page, on the other side, where that money has to go. And balance it out and do not go beyond that. 
enforce it on yourself. And number six, seek legitimate ways to increase your net income. Your net income. Now, one of the things that often happens is, well, my wife is going to have to work. It may be that you will not increase your net income by very much when that happens. You better investigate that. Look at it real carefully, all the additional costs involved when your spouse works. It may involve getting a second job yourself, or it may involve getting a different job. But seek legitimate ways to increase your net income so that you can get yourself out of bondage as quickly as possible. Now, I've spent too long on that, but let me rush ahead now to the number four principle. We've talked about three principles of family finance found in the Word of God. Principle number four is that God wants us to make the most of His gifts. He really does. Whatever God gives to us, He wants us to make the most of it. Say, how can I make the most of what God has given to me? Let me give you, again, six suggestions. I will attempt to be more brief than I was before on those last six. Number one, if you want to make the most of what God has given you, beware of swindlers. That's rather reasonable, isn't it? Investigate carefully the promises that sound too good to be true, because they usually are. Reject those promises of a fast buck that you hear about. Beware of swindlers. Number two, be a wise shopper. Look for the best buy. Delay some purchases until there is a sale. I have a little thing that I hate to buy a book for full price. And uh, in my ministry, of course, books are the tools that I use. But uh, I despise paying full price for a book and always look for sales. Use coupons. Some of you may feel that's too much trouble. You can save literally hundreds of dollars a year if you wisely use coupons. Attempt to buy at a discount. The number three, if you want to make the most of what God has given you, do not sign, rather co-sign, on a loan agreement. Because that leaves you responsible in case of a default of the other person. Listen to some of the verses from the Word of God about this. Proverbs 17, 18. A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes surety, that is a co-signer, in the presence of his neighbor. The Word of God says you lack in sense if you co-sign alone. Proverbs 22, verses 26 and 27. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become sureties for debts. If you have nothing to pay, why should he, that is the creditor, take your bed from under you? You say, well, does that mean never help another Christian? No, it doesn't mean that at all. You can help another Christian. But when you do, don't loan money, don't co-sign a net, give money. Give with no expectation at all in return. And if that believer repays you, then fine. If not, then you've given it to the Lord. I believe the Word of God gives this principle too, that you should not charge interest of another believer. So you can help other believers. But when you quote, loan them money, in your mind, make it a gift so that there does not develop a rift between you and that brother. Consider whatever you give as a loan to the Lord. Proverbs 19, 17 says, He who is gracious to a poor man 
lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. A fourth suggestion as to how to make the most of what God has given you is to borrow money wisely if you must borrow. Not beyond what is essential. Not for beyond what is essential. And not for impulse buying. And I think it's a good principle never to buy on your first contact with a salesman. Now I apologize to you salesmen who may be here who won't like that. But I think that's good counsel nonetheless to never buy in that first contact. In fact, one of my friends told me this week that his principle is that he tells the salesman, there are two things I must do. First of all, I have to think about this 24 hours. Number two, I have to tell my wife. And he said by that time, he usually doesn't buy. (laughs) Do not borrow for depreciating items. Items that lose value in time. Do not borrow beyond what can be repaid. As I've suggested already, rather than borrowing, allow God the opportunity to provide or to redirect you or to deny your concern for this moment. Don't allow yourself the luxury of becoming indulgent and running ahead of God with an independent spirit. And when you consider borrowing, Understand the true nature of interest and how that increases the cost of the item that you may be buying on sale. In the long run, you may be paying more because you borrowed money to buy the item on sale instead of waiting and paying perhaps even full price when you had the cash. And notice whether it's simple interest or compounded interest. And never buy without figuring the actual cost of the item over the term of the contract of your borrowing. Suggestion number five as to how to make the most of what God has given you. Prepare a will to protect your assets and your family. Every person ought to have a will. I must confess to you, mine is woefully out of date. And so as I preach this, there is this stab in my own heart If that's your case, or if you don't have a will, please see a professional who can help you draw one up. Because if you don't have a will, the government has one for you. And number six, invest some of your money in a wise manner. Invest some of your money in a wise manner. Don't gamble in a high-risk scheme. And don't become bondage to worry over the investments that you make. But if you want to make the most of what God has given you, then learn to wisely invest some of it in some manner. I think all of us need to realize that character is revealed by one's money management. By that I don't mean that a person who gets rich or one who is miserly has good character. That's not the point. But the point is, how one does handle or manage his money does reveal his true character. But someone says, I never seem to have enough money. Maybe a lot of us can identify with that. I never seem to have enough. It never goes far enough. And if that goes on long enough, the question comes, then why doesn't God meet my needs? Right? 
John MacArthur suggests four questions to ask when you are thinking about that first one. I never seem to have enough. Why not? Four questions are, number one, do I really need more? Do I really need more? Number two, is God testing my faith? I need to consider that. Number three, did I already misuse what he gave me? And therefore, it seems I don't have enough. Number four, have I violated biblical principles? And he lists some of the principles. The principle regarding stinginess. Proverbs 11.24 says, There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due. And it results only in want. Stinginess. The violation of the principle of generosity, really is the principle, can cause us not to have enough. We may be guilty of hastiness. There are some of us who are impulse buyers, as I've already suggested. Proverbs 21.5 says, Everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. May be guilty of stubbornness. There are some people who have the idea they're going to do whatever they want to with their money, and they don't care what God says. Proverbs 13.18 says, Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline. There are some people who don't have enough because of laziness. Proverbs 20.13, Do not love sleep, lest you become poor. Open your eyes, and you'll be satisfied with food. Proverbs 23.21, Drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Some may be guilty of indulgence, and therefore they don't have enough. Proverbs 23.21 says, For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty. How many have sadly learned that? And so, my friend, if you feel that you don't have enough money, it may be because you violated one of those verses in the Word of God. Well, in this brief detour regarding biblical finances, I've only been suggestive, not exhaustive in what I've said. If you need more detailed or personal help, if you need more instruction in this way, then let me encourage you to take the course on finances that's being offered next quarter in the Grace Center for Biblical Studies. That's being offered in one of the two hours this quarter, and the next quarter will be offered the opposite hour, so that within the next uh, three months, you may be able to take it at least. Because there you will spend 12 or 13 weeks talking through these things that we've talked over quickly in just a few weeks. If you want help before you can get to that, then let me encourage you to get the book Christian Financial Concepts by Larry Burkett. Actually, this is a workbook that you go through. It is a Bible study course to help you to understand what the Word of God says regarding your finances. Christian Financial Concepts by Larry Burkett. B-U-R-K-E-T-T. Our finances and how we handle them are important. They are a measure of our maturity 
and our character. But my friend, as important as finances are, let us never forget that they shrink in relation to our spiritual concerns and our relationship with God. Now sometimes our finances reflect our relationship with God, don't they? But if you're here today with the impression that somehow what you do with your money or how much you give or so on makes you acceptable with God, let me tell you now clearly without any hesitation that we become right with God not on the basis of our money, whether how much or how little we have, but on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is your heart's need. That is the resource that you're lacking right now in your life. Of all men, whatever your bank account says, if you don't have Jesus, you're impoverished. You're poor. But if you'll receive him today, he will pour into you the life of his spiritual riches. And if you have problems in finances or in any other area of your life, he will begin working from the inside of you to correct those problems. You say, well, I'm trying to get those things cleaned up before I do that. Listen, don't do that. That's doing it in reverse. That's putting the cart before the horse. Let him come into your life and then work through you to enable you, to help you with those difficulties that you face. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, you say so much in your word regarding this important subject, and we have, it seems so very quickly, but skimmed the surface. And yet I pray that there will be some help here for us so that we may be wise and godly in the handling of our finances. Lord, if there are today some tough decisions some of us need to make, the right prioritizing of our lives to reflect the true values that there are, then I pray that we'll make those decisions. Give us the courage to do that and the discipline to stick with it. For Lord, we want to be responsive to your spirit and be able to handle our finances as you direct us. And Father, I pray that if there be one here today who doesn't know Christ, that that one would understand the simplicity of receiving him and come to know him to whom to know is life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.